everyone, and welcome back to the Advara in Conversations with podcast. I'm Julie Ozier, the Senior Vice President for IRB Review at Advara, and I'm thrilled to explore decentralized clinical trials, or DCTs as you may hear them today, with the Chief Scientific Officer at Medable, Pamela Tenners. Thanks, Julie. I'm excited to be here today. Like you said, I'm the Chief Science Officer at Medable, and as such, we really try to understand evidence or create evidence, best practice, and inform policy with the work that we do here. And obviously, decentralized clinical trials and the regulatory changes, the landscape that's changing around us are sort of top of mind for me and always excited and interested to talk about how those are shaping the present and future of clinical trials, which we all hope are going to be better than the ones we've had in the past. Absolutely. Great. Let's just jump right on in. As you said, I think you're right. It's becoming a little more commonplace for folks to use DCTs, and there comes a lot of benefits with that, but then also a lot of challenges. And I thought maybe we could sort of explore some of those benefits and challenges and think of different ways of doing research within a decentralized model. Great. And I think maybe well, where we could start is with a definition, because decentralized trials are one of those terms that people have different visions of when they hear the term. So the one that maybe we could start with is the latest one that was described in the FDA Omnibus Reform Act, the Fedora Act that was just signed in December. And they describe it, it's an American legislation, so obviously it's American, but I think it describes it pretty nicely, that a decentralized trial is a clinical study in which some or all of the study-related activities occur at a location separate from the investigator's locations. So it means that there's different DCT configurations, such as e-consent, the use of clinical outcome assessment captured on your phone or web, so ECOA and other things, and that elements should be fit for purpose and based on the study populations, the condition under study, and the phase of the development. And the goal, going back to what we hope uh, these the technology or digitizing clinical trials will enable, is that we can improve participants' access and experience while maintaining their safety. We also hope to improve the site experience and then also maintain and improve data quality and increase study performance. And what I mean by that is sort of do the things better operationally in a clinical trial, which means maybe ending faster, finding, you know, enrolling faster, improving the diversity. A lot of talk about that trials need to represent the diversity of the people living with the condition. So maybe technology can be used for that as well. And then also eventually we hope that it'll reduce cost. So with that, I think I mentioned some of the benefits some of the other things that may happen um, unintentionally is that with digitization, we may be excluding a group of people that don't have access to technology like other people have. And there's a really interesting article that was in the Atlantic in last fall that talked about the pandemic legacy. And there they said that technological solutions tend to rise in the pandemic penthouses, whereas the inequity seep into its cracks. So it's kind of this idea that technology is not evenly spread across a society, basically, and how we can use technology to overcome that. I love that you mentioned, and that also the definition mentions that it's more than just technology. It reminds me of the study where they were testing blood pressure in African-American men and their awareness of it, and they took the study to barbershops. So they took the study where the participants were, and it was just a lot easier to be able to recruit 
when you're in the area that they frequent. And so it's not all technology, like you said, but absolutely technology is one very, very big piece of it. And I like how you mentioned the digital divide. That is so true. You know, the elderly or the people that don't have Wi-Fi signals readily available or don't know how to use an app on a phone. You know, you have to be able to include those participants as well. Totally agree. And I think, I mean, we've all heard the statistic that 70% of people in the U.S. live more than two hours away from a research site. So just right there, logistically, it's probably hard for people to get to a research site. So how can we get closer to them? You mentioned the barbershops as one option. I mean, the other option is using home health nurses, having people come into their houses or maybe get closer into their communities in in places like retail pharmacies or grocery stores and sort of incorporating all those things, like really go to where the people are so that they can participate. That also means, by the way, that we need to think about potentially the research site as a different site than what it's traditionally been. And maybe it's more of your local physician and your local hospital systems that can participate in research. And as you mentioned, all of that is likely enabled by technology, but we need to think of all those things. Absolutely. And it, in thinking about this and searching for what participants might actually want, it seems that with some diseases and maybe some studies, there is a little bit of face-to-face that they would want as opposed to being all remote or all telehealth. So I think a hybrid approach is really interesting and might even be better to offer participants sort of their choice of how to do it. Exactly. And I think when I think of DCTs, I'm probably pretty much in the middle with a hybrid approach. I don't often think of it as completely decentralized. And um, we just need to make sure that we give people options because the participant population is also not monolithic. So while in, I think, 2016 or 17, which is now a little dated, and maybe the numbers are slightly different, but when I was at City, we asked people if they wanted to participate in what we then called a mobile clinical trial, a trial that allowed technology to, you know, to run the trial. And in that survey, we found that about 70% of people said they would prefer it, but that then also means 30% of people did not. And it may just be situational. There may be days that if I've been on the phone all day long for work, maybe I want to go outside and go see, go to the research site to just do something different. And maybe some days I don't. So it's giving that optionality is, I think, what will be important. And just to remember that different conditions may have people more likely to choose one over another, but that doesn't mean all of them want that or this other thing either. Absolutely. It is so interesting, though. I read a statistic the other day that said that during the pandemic, that 98% of patients were happy with telehealth visits as opposed to coming in. So that's really interesting. That's a lot. That is a lot. And maybe during the pandemic, that was driven by whatever the circumstances were back then. But maybe now some people actually might want to come in. So I think it's important to know that what we thought had to happen, which was a participant needed to come into the specialized research site, that probably wasn't exactly true because we now learned that people actually don't mind doing things off their phone or using telehealth. But what it also doesn't mean is that they exclusively only want to do those things, right? 
I was at a site for 12 years and we had a group of people come in. They became friends. They had to sit there for a long time doing pulmonary function tests and sort of over time. And they liked coming in. They became a group of friends. They were playing cards while they were waiting on their next assessment, 30 minutes, an hour. And so, you know, some of those considerations also need to be taken into account. Absolutely. And I wanted to kind of think about, you know, what are the challenges with the regulatory framework around this? I know having been at an institution, sometimes it's hard to be able to have the resources to have home health nurse help with research or, you know, any kind of mobile unit for, you know, blood draws or anything like that. Because, you know, some institutions, it's hard for their investigators to be able to delegate authority to those things in a clinical trial. So it'll be interesting to see how the regulatory landscape changes to accommodate this, because I think this is something that it's going to have to be a little more flexible. And I'm specifically talking about, you know, the thought of being engaged and not engaged in research and who is and what they have to do in order to be engaged. I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head here. Some of the policy things are going to have to change. How they change will remain to be seen. But the one big, one hurdle that comes up often, let's call it that, is the oversight of the principal investigator. And how do you do that now versus... When I was at a site, I think I left there in 2007, there was no, I don't think there was an iPhone, maybe there was an iPhone, but there, you know, there were no systems like that where you could even think that you could do research differently. But now the clinical trial landscape involves home health nurses, involves potentially a retail pharmacy, involves remote screening. So how can somebody oversee that appropriately? And that's really the goal of PI oversight, and again, for mainly US environment, but the 1572 sort of details what the expectations are and what a principal investigator agrees to. Well, some of that now is not as clear cut when everything happened in your research site. It was clear that you would have oversight of who was entering the data, how they were entering the data, whether you knew about adverse events or not on time, whether you managed those appropriately or not. Now, with different people coming in from all angles, sometimes people that you may not have contractual agreements with, how do you oversee somebody that you have no way of overseeing in some way? So that's some of the work we're doing at Medible is trying to understand that and maybe create a sort of, we did a survey, we're going to have a meeting about this to sort of think through what is appropriate oversight mean now that maybe we're not all co-located physically, but we're still all working on the same trial with the same participants and all of that. Another policy angle is sort of ethics review of DCT trials. So regular brick and mortar trials typically is like one month review. Sometimes, you know, if you missed, if the IRB agenda was full, this is what I experienced sometime in the month of May, I had to wait till June to get my trial reviewed. But basically you kind of knew what the timelines were. In a DCT, it's become a little different, we understand, because it's not always clear what elements are really digitized in these new trials and how that's operationalized. And those are some of the things that IRBs need to know about. So we've worked with the MRCT Center at Harvard to sort of go through the whole patient journey and identify if you have an e-consent, what would you need as documentation for then the IRB to have the appropriate decisions and to not overreach. So those recommendations are going to be coming out in probably the second quarter of the year, but it's really about equipping ethics committees and IRBs with the right things to ask for 
asking the sponsors and the PIs to submit it in the right way so they don't have to go dig in a consent to figure out if something is an electronic consent or if it's actually paper <laughs> and things like that. And then creating some standards around that so that the quality can be ensured. There's no overreach, but the appropriate conversations are had to ensure that patients' safety and integrity in the trial are maintained. And that's oftentimes about privacy and data security. So we were working on some of those things. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that because that is exactly some of the things as an IRB that we worry about. You know, we we want to know how the data is going to be secure. But also, I love the idea that you are giving some guidelines because not all IRBs are really familiar with what kind of security methods are out there or what even kind of electronic tools are out there to be used and what's secure and what is not. So I think that is something that IRBs really worry about a lot. And, you know, part of their review process, as you said, is to look at the consent process and to look at the data and where it goes and what happens to it so that they can make sure that the participants are informed and that that's part of the decision of the risk of the study. Yeah, we had some really interesting discussions because while sort of MRCT and Medible facilitated the discussion, this was really a multi-stakeholder group of people representing IRBs at academic centers. Advara was represented. There were industry sponsors represented. There were patients that were there. There were sites so that we could really think of this from all angles and come up with recommendations that were sort of based on a multitude of opinions and stakeholders. And that really sort of maybe create a path forward for how people can approach this. Like what does the intake form look like when you submit a decentralized trial? Because it probably needs to have some extra little things that, yes, check if it's e-consent, check if you're using televisits, and then to have the appropriate discussions. It was a, it was actually super interesting. I learned a lot. We had regulators there. We had representation from FDA and OHRP. So we feel that what the group came up with is might hopefully be a valuable tool for others to use. I love that. That is That is great. And we as an IRB will be really enthusiastic to hear about some guidance on that as well. Well, you helped create it, so it was good. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so I wanted to explore, Pamela, what your thoughts are about what populations, you know, are really going to struggle with DCTs and what populations is it really going to benefit or can we really tell yet? My one comment would be that we can't make assumptions about populations. I think the EMA paper that came out, what is a recommendations paper on decentralized clinical trials, did say that you have to really look at the populations at hand to make sure that this works for everyone, that study populations. Because, for example, you might consider that some elderly people might have a harder time with, you know, digital tools, but there's plenty of older people that have no problem with that whatsoever. But there might be other things to consider, such that maybe some populations would be better served using their own phone because they're familiar with it and they wouldn't have to learn a new tool, so to speak. But if you only ask people to use their own phones, A, some phones may not work for the clinical trial. For example, my dad, when he was alive, had a flip phone. You cannot do an eco assessment on a flip phone, (laughs) no matter how hard you try. But then some people might not have a phone. So then you exclude people. So it's this conversation about bring your own device versus provision devices. So bring your own device might be easier for an older population, but maybe some of those older people don't have a device and then you still have to provision devices. So it's really an assessment of 
what it is they would be using it for, I think. And then the condition itself, sometimes maybe for Parkinson's, you might want to make some accommodations if people have a harder time working with smaller, like have motor movement issues. So mm -hmm. I think it's just really not taking it for granted and going through. The EMA paper also outlined vulnerable populations to maybe consider differently and pediatric populations, right? To sort of think of all those things and just not make assumptions and maybe start with a small feasibility study or an assessment or maybe a, a literature search to make sure that what you're trying to do has been tested and you don't make the assumptions that it'll work in that population. You know, I, I live in the South and in the South, there's a lot of distress with healthcare and a lot of folks won't even go into the doctor. And so I think getting that population might take some creativity and it might be just the right thing for something decentralized because they may not want to actually come into an office and see anyone. Yeah, and then it goes back to what you mentioned earlier is working with those local communities to understand what it is that would make this work in the populations that we would want to make sure are represented in the trial because they might be disproportionately affected by the condition that you're studying. I guess of what I would say is none of these solutions are by themselves a silver bullet. It'll take a tapestry of things to make clinical trials better. Technology can help, yes. We have to work with communities and patient groups to make sure that what we're trying to do as far as a clinical trial works and that we consider their concerns and their things up front because if you don't, you're going to notice it in lower recruitment rates, right? Technology has many benefits may have some drawbacks, but those can be helped if you then also include the communities in which you work. Talk to the patients that you may want to consider and just put all of that together up front and you should be able to end up with a trial that accomplishes what it plans to do, which is try to understand whether a treatment is safe and efficacious in the population you want to study the treatment. I love that. And I love that, you know, over the past 10 years plus, a lot of medical centers have been looking at participatory research within the community. You know, how do you get the community engaged in research and how do you get them to help you design research or have input on it? So I think what we didn't know 10 years ago was we were really laying the groundwork for some DCTs. Right. And some of the recommendations that City wrote a couple of years ago and recently updated say that you know you need to involve the stakeholders so you need to involve the sites you need to involve the patients and the communities and the investigators and just make sure that your trial is set up in the best way because if you start off with a less than optimal trial let's say dct technologies isn't gonna sort of magically make your trial all better it's not a magic wand dct elements work best in an optimized clinical trial for all the things like using quality by design, focus on the data that matters, focus on the things that matter, watch the things that are critical to the success of your trial and use the technology where it makes sense. Absolutely, I would agree. I think we've come to a conclusion that hybrid is going to be best and really choice of how to design it is going to be best and really allowing the participants to be able to have a voice in that as well. Correct. I mean, in the end, the participants are the experts on living with the disease and therefore then also deciding what studies they want to participate in, because that's the other part, right? There's a lot of studies and oftentimes patients now will make conscious choices about the trials they want to participate in. And 
if they don't work in their daily lives for, you know, maybe logistical reasons, if they don't work in their life because of the science isn't what they're interested in, or, you know, all those things, then we will continue to see low enrollment rates. But there really is an opportunity to have all these elements of trial improvement come together using technology where it makes sense, how it makes sense, and then have data that people can make decisions on. Because a lot of people need clinical trial data to make decisions on. The regulators needed to approve something to make sure something is worth, you know, every every medical product has side effects. You just have to make sure it has more benefits, a whole lot more benefits than the side effects. Patients have to decide what treatments they want, and physicians have to decide what they might want to offer their patients. So we all need this data to be as reliable as possible. Absolutely, and as transparent as possible. Well, thank you, Pam, for joining me in this important discussion on DCT and regulatory changes. I'm so happy we're able to connect and really appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. It was a great conversation. I think we could talk for hours, if not days, about these topics. So look forward to the feedback you're getting and thank you. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, keep a lookout on Advara's social channels and on advara.com for our next discussion.